Good morning, church family. It's so good to see you on this Lord's Day. And thank you for worshiping the Lord through song. And now let's worship through the word, shall we? If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to take your listening outline from your worship guide, get a pen in hand, and open your Bibles, if you would, in the New Testament to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is where we'll begin in just a moment. And as we're preparing to hear the word here in the worship center, I want to offer a warm, warm welcome to everyone in our contemporary service today, as well as those of you who are joining on TV or online. I'm really glad you're here this morning as well. Do you see the title of today's message? It's called, What to Think, What to Think, and How to Feel. What to Think and How to Feel When a Christ Follower You Love Dies. Now, this morning, I really want to talk with you, if I may, about two subjects from Scripture, from 1 Thessalonians 4. And why 1 Thessalonians 4? That's where our chapter a day readings have been. And if you're not in on that journey, let me invite you. Pull out your phone, text the word chapter to 22828. You'll be able to sign up with your email address and join in with hundreds of us as we're reading and applying God's Word together. But I want to speak with you today from 1 Thessalonians 4 in the beginning verses of 1 Thessalonians 5 that we read this last week about two topics. The first topic is death and the second topic is encouragement. Now I suspect if I were to take a poll this morning and if I were to ask you how many of you would rather talk about death or talk about encouragement, most of us would be on the second topic, would we not? But you're going to see with me this morning from scripture that the two are actually tied together and it's really important it's really important uh, that every person, if you live very long, talk about and come to understand what the scripture says about death. It reminds me of a story I read from the pen of Margaret Bumbaugh this past week. She was relating a conversation she had with her four-year-old granddaughter. She and her four-year-old granddaughter were talking one day about death. Now, why were they talking about death? Well, it was because Margaret Bumbaugh's husband, the four-year-old's granddad, had cancer. Uh, his diagnosis was terminal, and this caring grandmother wanted to prepare her four-year-old for the inevitable. But like a lot of us, the four-year-old didn't particularly like the idea of talking about her puppy dying. The grandmother says, but then we talked about how we all die someday. And she said, in fact, we listed the names of people close to the four-year-old, including herself. And the grandmother said, I explained to her that each person will go at a different time. And the little four-year-old girl thought about it for a moment. And then it all came together in her mind and she said rather brightly, oh, we take turns, right? <laughs> and the grandmother said, exactly right. Now that it made sense, the little four-year-old happily went out to play. And I want to say there really is a sense in which she was 
exactly right. Because if the Lord tarries, everyone will get a turn. Everyone will get a turn. Every one of us will die. In fact, every person at some point as we live has to shape their thoughts or come to grips with or wrestle with or somehow address the subject of dying. It's a reality in this fallen world. I read this week that contemporary philosopher Simon Critchley in a 2008 book that he wrote called The Book of Dead Philosophers, he actually described how 190 of history's most famous philosophers died. As you read through that, uh, some of them are moving, some of them are sort of heart-wrenching, some of them make you smile. For instance, just a handful, he said Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, died by holding his breath. Berkeley died while his wife read him a sermon. Diderot ate an apricot, choked on it, and died. Albert Camus once said that he couldn't imagine a death more meaningless than dying in a car accident. So guess what? In 1960, at the age of 47, Camus died, you guessed it, in a car accident. A.J. Ayer, a resolute atheist, choked on a piece of salmon and technically died. Later, he said that this near-death experience provided, quote, strong evidence that death does not end consciousness. Interestingly, his wife reported, quote, he has gotten so much nicer since he died. I thought that was great. And he died for good a year later. When Critchley wrapped up the book, he quoted Epicurus about the certainty of death, who said, quote, against all other things, it is possible to obtain security. But when it comes to death, we human beings live in an unwalled city. And so this morning, I want to ask, what do you think and how do you feel when a Christ follower you love dies? When we turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians, that was a question they were asking the Apostle Paul had helped plant this church around 50 AD on his second missionary journey. He had made his way on to Corinth. He sent Timothy back to find out how they were doing because they were undergoing pretty significant persecution. Now, Timothy came back with good news. They were persevering in the faith, but he also came back with some of their questions. Because apparently what had happened was, since Paul had planted the church, since some had come to faith in Christ, and now it was some time later, some of those who had trusted Christ had died. Now, we don't know if they had died because they had been persecuted and killed for the faith. We don't know if they'd been in some accident. We don't know if they had had a disease or died of old age. But what we do know is that they had died. And so now these young believers in this church in Thessalonica were saying, 
what about those who have died in Christ? There was some confusion around that. So in the book of 1 Thessalonians, the apostle Paul addresses that. And when he does, oh, there's so much to help us know what to think and how to feel when a Christ follower you love dies. Let's look at it, shall we? 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. The Bible says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now in this, just this first verse, there are three or four important lessons. Write them in on your outline. Here they are. Number one is this, that God wants us to know. God wants us to know what will happen to Christ followers who die. Paul says, we do not want you, the ESV translates, to be uninformed. Some of the older versions say, we do not want you to be ignorant. The actual Greek New Testament word is the word gnosis, from which we get knowledge with an alpha privative, agnosis, that we get our word agnostic from. The scripture is saying, Paul is saying, God does not want you to say, well, I don't know, or I don't think you can know. I'm agnostic about that. He says, oh, no. God wants us to know with confidence and assurance and certainty what happens when a person who is in Christ dies. So God wants us to know. Here's the second truth. Write it in. And that is sleep here is a metaphor. Sleep is a metaphor for the condition of those who are identified later in this passage as the dead in Christ. Look at the verse again. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. In other words, those who have died. Now, if you wonder whether or not this is a common metaphor, right in the margin, John chapter 11. And you can go back and see Jesus' conversation with the disciples when Lazarus died, when he used this very metaphor, but then eventually said, no, your guys are misunderstanding. Lazarus is not asleep, he's died. Sleep is just a metaphor for dying. Here's the third truth from this one verse, write it in. God wants us to know, sleep here is a metaphor. And the third thing this verse teaches us is it is not wrong, it is not wrong for us to grieve when a Christ follower we love dies. He says, we do not want you to be informed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. The implication is, is that we will grieve. You know, occasionally I bump into a person who thinks that if their faith is strong enough, it means they're above grief, they're above loss, they're above sorrow. And there's this sense of contrived uh, denial of the loss that one feels whenever there is grief. But you know, that's just not the way it is in Scripture. The people of Israel, they grieved and mourned for 30 days when Moses died. In Acts chapter 8, early believers lamented greatly whenever Stephen was killed for his faith. And when Jesus showed up at the funeral of Lazarus and was there with his friends Mary and Martha, what did he do? He wept. So now listen. 
There is nothing that says grieving over the loss of one you love demonstrates a lack of faith or a lack of trust or a lack of belief in the Lord. Instead, it says, you're just an emotionally healthy person because an emotionally healthy person grieves the loss of one they love, even if that person is a Christ follower. So what are we learning so far? Well, God wants us to know, he's gonna teach us, Sleep here is a metaphor. It's not some doctrine of soul sleep. Third, it's not wrong to grieve when a Christ follower we love dies. And number four, our grief, though, should be informed and diminished by the hope we have in Christ. Our grief should be informed by and diminished by the hope that we have in Christ. Paul says, now, you're going to grieve, but I don't want you to grieve as others do who have no hope. This week I heard um, uh, a video, I saw a video of Tim Challies describing the death. He's a Christian writer and brought a blogger, uh, the unexpected, unanticipated death of his healthy before then 20 year old son just over a year ago. And as he recounted the grief that his family felt. It was interesting with a year plus perspective. He said there were two rivers running through our soul. One was a river of grief, a river of sorrow, a river of loss. He said, but because we believe God is sovereign, God is good, God is wise, and the gospel is true, right alongside that river of grief, there was a river of joy, a river of peace, a river of confidence that our son was well with the Lord. Do you see healthy people in Christ? Both rivers run right through our heart and right through our soul. Well, there's a lot in that first verse, but Paul goes on. And so I want us to as well, look at it, verse 14. Paul says, I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. Now, almost every word of this next paragraph is important. Let's look at it. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So immediately after describing our hope, he ties it to Jesus' death and resurrection. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, listen, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and are left till the coming of the Lord will not precede or go ahead of those who have fallen asleep. Here's what's gonna happen, look at it, verse 16. One day yet future, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those who are alive, who are left, when Jesus comes again, will be caught up together with them, with the dead in Christ, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then he concludes by saying, verse 18, therefore, and here's the second topic, encourage one another 
with these words. So what are we to learn here? Write it in, number five. We are to learn here that our hope, the hope that mitigates our grief, the hope that sustains us is built on the death, resurrection, and return of Jesus Christ. Paul says, it's because we believe that Jesus died and rose again that we have hope for the future and for his return. The sixth thing we learn, write it in, is that those who have died in Christ will be at no disadvantage when Jesus comes again. They will rise first, the Apostle Paul says. Apparently, some in Thessalonica thought those who had died in Christ were, were going to miss out of the glory of the moment when Jesus eventually came again. And Paul says, oh no, they're not going to miss out on anything. They will rise first. And then number seven, write it in, those Christ followers who are alive when Jesus returns will be caught up together with them, with those who are dead in Christ and who are coming with him in the clouds, clouds of glory, not rain clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so the apostle Paul says, we will always be with the Lord. And so at his coming one day, we will be with those who have died in Christ and we will be with the Lord. That ought to bring us encouragement. Now, it's always good to let Scripture interpret Scripture, is it not? So is there another place in the Bible that tells us about what Paul is describing here in 1 Thessalonians 4? And the answer is yes. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. So look at it with me. I've put it on your outline. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So none of us are going to go into God's eternal kingdom with the flesh and blood, the bodies we have now. You want to say amen to that? Amen. I would. This flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable, that's this body, inherit the imperishable. And then the Apostle Paul says, behold... I tell you a mystery. Now, a mystery here means something not previously known, but that has now been revealed. He says, I tell you a mystery. At the coming of Christ, he says, we shall not all sleep. In other words, we won't all be dead when Christ comes again. Some of us will still be alive, but we shall all be changed. You see that verse I've underlined there? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Some say that ought to be the theme verse in every church nursery around the country. I don't know about that. That's not really on point, but it makes me smile. Look at verse 52. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. What is that change? Look at verse 52. In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, and the dead, the dead in Christ, will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, this mortal body must put on immortality. 
And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a good place to say amen. So earlier this week, we were reading through the book of 1 Thessalonians in our staff meeting, and I was getting our team to help me interpret it and apply it, and someone raised their hand and said, hey, I've got a question, uh, Pastor Tim. Would you comment on what happens to us when we die and what Paul is describing in 1 Thessalonians 4? Is it the same? And so we did in the staff meeting. A little bit later this week, I got an email from a chapter a day reader she said her dad had died. He was a devoted Christ follower. Her dad had died. She said, but in reading 1 Thessalonians 4, it leaves me a little confused. Can you help me know where I should think about my dad being now and what's going to happen in the future? I thought, hmm, this is two questions about this. On Friday, as I was preparing this message and I walked downstairs from my home desk to... Um, speak to my bride, she said, hey, I was reading 1 Thessalonians 4 this morning, I got a question. And she asked me the same question. And I thought, hmm, I bet that means more of us have that question. So let's see if we can answer it scripturally. The Bible says you and I, created in the image of God, have a body, and we also have a soul or a spirit. It's important to, to notice the two parts of us, body and soul, spirit and body, two parts of us to help us understand. So look, I've written it on your outline. Here's what the Bible teaches. If I am a follower of Christ, when I die, my spirit my soul departs immediately from my body and immediately is at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8 says those words. To be absent from the body for a believer is to be home with the Lord. Now, my body is not home with the Lord. My body is buried but my spirit, my soul departs and is immediately with the Lord. You see that in other places, Luke 16, where immediately in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, when Lazarus dies, immediately the angels take him into the presence of the Lord. Same thing Jesus says to the repentant thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Same thing Paul teaches in Philippians 1, 21, 23, that to be absent from the body is to depart and to be with Christ. So now listen, if someone you love in Christ has died, they're in Christ, they're a believer and they have died and you buried their body or they were cremated or somehow their, their body uh, was lost in a fire, or whatever, at the instant they died, immediately their soul or spirit goes to be at home, at rest, at peace, in the presence of joyful and blessing 
in the presence of the Lord. That's where they are today. You can have confidence in that. But now where's the body? Their body's still here. So there's another chapter to the salvation story. It does not occur when we die, but it occurs when Jesus comes again. And when Jesus comes again, the Bible teaches us, Paul teaches us in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in 1 Corinthians 15, when Jesus comes again is when you and I, if we're in Christ, will receive our resurrection bodies. They are new bodies, spiritually empowered bodies. They are imperishable and immortal bodies. And in those bodies that we receive when Christ comes again, we will be with the Lord forever in the new heaven and the new earth. So when Jesus comes again, those who have died previously come with him. The spirits of those who have died in Christ come with him. And the dead in Christ rise. They receive their resurrection body. And those of us who are alive at that moment, we're changed in an instant. We are caught up together with them in the air. And we receive our resurrection body as well. I put a little longer quote than usual on your outline today, but look at it. Dr. J.I. Packer writes, Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. And when he returns to this world, he will raise his servants to a resurrection life like his own. Christians alive at his coming will at that instant undergo a marvelous transformation. While Christians who had died will experience a glorious re-embodiment. Our present bodies, like Adam's, are natural and earthly, subject to all sorts of weakness and decay until finally they perish. But our resurrection bodies, like Christ's, will be spiritual. It means they will be created, indwelt, and sustained by the Holy Spirit and will belong to the eternal, imperishable, immortal, heavenly order of things. Now, one more paragraph. Look, he says, however... As the risen Jesus was recognizable by his disciples, despite the changes that resurrection had wrought in him, and as the re-embodied Moses and Elijah were recognizable at the transfiguration, and as re-embodied Jewish saints were recognizable at the time of Jesus rising, so risen Christians will be able to recognize each other and joyful reunions beyond this world with believers whom we loved and then lost through death are to be expected. What that means is one day we're going to see and know and have fellowship again with all of our beloved who died in Christ. That's implicit in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, which was written because persons who were alive in Christ, feared they had finally lost those who died in Christ. Paul wrote as he did about Christ's return in order to assure them and us that they would certainly see their Christian loved ones again. Oh, what a great promise that is. So, how does this wrap up and how should we wrap up today? Well, Paul concludes the thought in chapter 5. Look at it. 
He says, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That is unexpectedly. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. He says, but you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So in other words, the Bible says the coming of the Lord, when all this will happen, will surprise those who are not in Christ. They will sense it is unexpected like a thief in the night. He said, but that's not true for us. For we are all children of light, children of day. We're not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation." And now I want you all to read with me the last three verses this morning. Verses 9, 10, and 11, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5. It begins, for God. Are you ready? Here we go. Let's read together. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So here's the last word. The fact that we, along with other Christ followers, will live with the Lord forever is the ultimate reason that we can and should encourage one another. Listen, brothers, listen, sisters. Our encouragement is not in our circumstances, but our encouragement is in the salvation that we have in Christ that death cannot rob us of, a salvation that will one day be complete when Jesus comes again. So now listen, look right up here. This message has been for those who are in Christ. But if you're not in Christ today, oh, the message is an entirely different one. And so today, don't you want to turn from sin and trust in Jesus so that this future is a future for you? Oh, listen, I urge you, I implore you, If you've never trusted Jesus, trust him today. It's the only preparation for your own death. It's the only way you'll see those who have died in Christ. It's the only way you'll go to heaven. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Follow him. Put your life in his hands today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for encouraging our hearts through the truth of scripture today. I want to pray now for some who have not yet followed you, that they would in this moment, by your grace, turn from sin, trust in Jesus, begin to follow him. Lord, don't don't let us buy the, the foolishness of our age, that death is the end of existence, or there's some sort of reincarnation, or all sorts of foolish ideas. 
But instead, oh Lord, help us know your truth and in that truth be encouraged now and always. This is our prayer today and we offer it in Jesus' name, amen.